Guys, before going to the podcast, just wanted to mention that Computational Design Next 2.0 conference will happen on 26th and 27th of September. It is a two-day online conference with live presentations, tutorials, interactive sessions, live mentorship, and panel discussions. So if you're interested about computational design or if you want to start your career as a computational designer, don't miss out this opportunity and just register to the conference by going to parametric-architecture.com and register to the CDNext conference as soon as possible before tickets end. Now let's get into the show. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, I'm Hamid Hasanzade. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Parametric Architecture Platform. Hopefully, we're continuing our podcast sessions. And in this episode, we sat down with Richard Hassel, founding director of Wuha Architects. Wuha is a Singapore-based architectural practice founded by Wong Moon Soom and Richard Hassel in 1994. The practice has gained global recognition for their integration of environmental and social principles at every stage of the design process. They have designed a diverse amount of innovative and highly influential projects which has been built in a number of cities and countries and their best known projects have been widely publicized as benchmarks for sustainable design. Richard Hassel was born in 1966 and graduated from the University of Western Australia in 1989. He was awarded as a Master of Architecture degree for the Armit University Melbourne in 2002. He is a board member of Singapore's Urban Redevelopment Authority's Design Advisory Committee and served as a member of the Housing and Development Board Architectural Design Panel. He has served as a board member of the Building and Construction Authority of Singapore as well as committees for the URA and the Design Singapore Council. He is currently an adjunct professor at the University of Western Australia. Guys, before going to the podcast, just wanted to mention that Computational Design Next 2.0 conference will happen on 26th and 27th of September. It is a two-day online conference with live presentations, tutorials, interactive sessions, live mentorship, and panel discussions. So if you're interested about computational design or if you want to start your career as a computational designer, don't miss out this opportunity and just register to the conference by going to parametric-architecture.com and register to the CDNext conference as soon as possible before tickets end. Now let's get into the show. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Richard. Hi, Amit. How are you? I'm super fine. Thank you so much. I think my headphone has a problem. Just let me just try to reconnect it again. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear oh, me? I hear you completely. That's great. Thank you. Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you here. Uh, thanks for accepting our, our interview request. Uh, to, yes, start, uh... to, to start, the mic is yours if you want to say to our followers. Oh, no, I'm just, uh, this is my first time going on um, Instagram Live, so uh, <laughs> forgive me if, if something goes wrong, but I'm excited to be talking to architecture and design and to have a conversation with you, Hamid. It'll be fun, I think. That's great. Would you please introduce yourself to our followers and how you ended up being a founding director of uh, Woha Architects and your story about being becoming an architect? Sure. Um, yes, so my name is Richard Hassel. I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. Um, and actually, for some reason, never thought of being an architect, even though I loved doing technical drawing in high school and, and designing things. But my heart was set on being an artist, actually. And I, so when I graduated from high school, I decided to do uh, fine art and become a painter. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was only after a year of that where I thought, oh, it's a bit of a lonely profession. You know, it's sort of, you get a lot into your own head. And I thought, I really don't want to do this. Uh, and then it was like this thunderclap. I thought, architecture, why aren't I doing architecture? <laughs> uh, so yeah. it was a little bit strange. I, I then started it and just loved it and, um, yeah, done it ever since. So that was back in... Um, uh, 1989, I think I started uh, my architecture degree. How old are and you? And then, 
1989, I finished my architecture degree. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look I'm old, 50, actually. I'm 54 this year. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so you you look old. like 45, <laughs> 43, 44. Must be the stress kind of uh, <laughs> keeping me young. <laughs> and then, uh, so when I did graduate, which was in 1989, that was actually the last time Australia was in this really bad recession. So there were no jobs for architects. And that's when I, um, I moved and came to Singapore because Singapore was still uh, doing quite well financially. Um, and once again, I, I really enjoyed it here. It was in the middle of, Southeast Asia, which is surrounded by amazing um, vernacular architecture and traditional architecture, and also one of the fastest growing uh, regions. So there was, um, uh, compared to Perth, where I'd, I'd been studying, you know, which is quite a small city, uh, right. to be surrounded by these sort of big cities and a lot of development, it was, it was sort of fun because you could sort of sense that there was a chance to, to change things. Right. Uh, because so much was transforming while I, I'd always felt in Perth it was sort of done already you know right. <laughs> the city was there it was very nice so the sort of architects were doing mainly um, you know residential work and things which was quite nice but it was sort of Asia you got a sense you could engage with um, sort of development in the world and and have a chance to influence that yeah great so how did you end up with uh, starting with uh, starting an architecture practice with a, like a colleague, with a friend, what happens? Why did you start? Oh, yeah, so, well, I started, I started working here um, uh, in, so it was 1990 when I started and then for five years worked at Kerry Hill Architects, uh, which is a well-known practice in this part of the world, mm -hmm. uh, mainly doing resort work. Um, and then after five, four years of that, so 1994, uh, I'd been working with a colleague, which was Mansung, and we got on really well and had sort of very, very similar training at university, very uh, similar attitude to design. And we, we, you know, we didn't drive each other crazy in the high stress uh, Actually, that's environment the key with deadlines. Actually, that's a partner. <laughs> it is. I think you need to stress test it. Uh, and so he's a very steady person. I'm probably a little more right. stressed stressful that he is, so he might have the bad end of the deal. Uh, but overall, we, we get along very well, and I think we, um, we try and have a very happy practice. And uh, I mean, people work really hard. We've got this amazing crew of uh, 100 people now. Um, yes. But we try and keep it always, I mean, very serious in terms of our work, but lighthearted and happy in terms of the mood of the office. That's great. That's great. So with this current situation of pandemic and COVID-19, how this pandemic affected your office, Wuha? Yeah, well, it was, um, with 100 people, it's quite a, um, a major impact to try and figure out how to move it all uh, to working from home. Uh, but Singapore had quite a slow ease into the lockdown because we, we had cases since um, January, um, some of the first exported cases in the world uh, and so we could see it coming but we had quite a few weeks to prepare for it so testing out the software uh, figuring out how to um, you know share files online and people working out of their bedrooms. so <laughs> it's like that now and it's uh, it is challenging I mean when you're used to sitting down next to people or sitting in a group and having group discussion it's right. quite although zoom and all these things it's not bad but it's something about sort of wrestling for the pen on the butter paper <laughs> and uh, uh, those sort of discussions, which it feels a little bit detached online. Right. But I think, I think we're building up skills as the weeks go on. Right. Um, I'm now sort of always on the iPad drawing over things and uh, it's getting, uh, getting a little easier. And we're actually quite curious to see after this, whether it makes sense that we continue it as a way of working for people that, that it suits. Um, yeah, so we're trying to look at it very positively as maybe this is a sort of catapult into um, next generation working or very flexible working. Uh, right. We already have completely flexible hours at our office so people can uh -huh. come in and leave whenever they want. Um, so this could just be the next step where we never see them again. <laughs> right. 
So what do you think this current situation will affect architecture in the future? Our lifestyles, our way of living, urban life, what do you think? I think, I mean, it's a little hard to say because, I mean, there's been pandemics before, uh, so it's not something totally new. But I was reading an interesting article on Slate magazine, I think it was, about how the, the 1918 pandemic actually um, was a big driver behind the international modern style, the sort of sanatorium um, architecture, clean, bright, uh, sort of free of, of germs, uh, very hygienic. Yes. Uh, so it was, uh, I think there was a change in, in mindset which did transform architecture. So it's probably a little soon to tell because I think everyone's sort of hungering in a way for the life they, they had a few weeks ago. So there's a great sort of a drive to go back the way it was, but at the same time, you really right. notice like if you're watching TV and you see a whole crowd of people and they're all hugging and kissing each other, you're going, oh, that's not right. You know, so that it's sort of already transformed the way we look at crowds yes. and people together. And I'm not sure how long it will take us to get over that or whether there'll be something of that permanently. Um, yes. But I think in some ways, Singapore, Hong Kong, when we had SARS, um, there, it was very similar. I was here during SARS and it was very frightening because I think SARS, the death rate was uh, very high and affected people of all ages. So, um, you know, it was very personal that you felt you might be dead next week for everybody through the city. Um, and so there was um, a sort of a culture of, of uh, the hygiene, the not touching lift buttons, uh, all the things that everybody's going through now was learnt that time. Uh, yes. But I have to say, like a year later, we were all back to normal. Um, it didn't Hopefully. last that long. Hopefully. <laughs> no, but I mean, our, our, our attitude towards hygiene and shaking hands and things actually returned. Yes. Uh, some things, like in Hong Kong, you don't share, like they have serving chopsticks rather than everyone digging in with a dish. So there were certain things that did change culturally from the SARS experience. I imagine yes. we had that with this yes. too. Yeah. Great. So I'd like to go with your projects. Uh, first of all, what guides you through the project when you start to design? Um, I guess it's probably changed over the years because we've, um, as we've evolved our position and what we think is important, I guess we now have a set of criteria that we think are really important um, in terms of even selecting the job. Um, and I think those are really, I mean, it's pretty broad based around, can this project make a difference in terms of uh, imagining a better future? Um, so we, we try and avoid projects that we feel are just business as usual. Um, I mean, the brief might be business as usual, but in talking to the client, we get a sense, you know, is there a possibility to um, push this in a certain direction that could be interesting. Um, and so um, that better future, a lot of it comes down to sustainability. Like can we um, achieve some new incremental improvement in sustainability? But uh, we've sort of come to realize that sustainability on its own is no use. It has to be grounded in the sort of cultural and community sense. Like it, 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 there's, it's sort of in the commons. And so there's a lot of interest in our firm in, uh, is this project all sort of worthy from a commons point of view? So if it's super luxury, super exclusive, uh, super about consumption, we feel like, you know, there's not much we can do there. Uh, and so that's where we, we try and do, uh, we've done Enabling Village, which is a community project. We've done public housing. Uh, we like to do public projects as well, because I think there's, there's a lot more opportunity to engage with these issues. Um, right. And so, yeah, we, we try and keep it very broad across a lot of times. Um, yeah. And yeah, and then I guess we've, we've also in a way um, have a series of approaches that we've uh, tried and tested before. So we have a little bit of a sort of um, magic bag of tricks in, <laughs> in terms of how we organize projects. Yes. And, and achieve cross ventilation and shading and the way to integrate greenery. Um, so um, a bit like Alexander, um, Christopher Alexander's pattern language. So we have a sort of series of patterns, but it's quite interesting to apply them in different 
scales, like Chaos. a very super high rise or a single story building. Um, and it wasn't really intentional. It was sort of after uh, we we wrote a book called Gun City Mega City, where we um, did a sort of self analysis on our projects, yes. and and that's where we were kind of surprised. We're going, oh, we <laughs> actually we do the same thing over and over again, but in quite different building forms yeah. and typologies. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> So I'll ask about Park Royal project, which you defined as topographical architecture, and it is a very uh, good example of a green architecture. When we look at this project, we see you have just turned a hotel to a public and global like space. Everybody can just come and visit. How did you manage to create a project uh, as a green spaces for the public? I love this project, actually. It's in the background, you see on the screen. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, that one was, uh, we're pretty excited because it was very close to our office. So one thing, we knew the site very well. And it's opposite this park, which um, was actually donated by a philanthropist. And um, so one of the early ideas, we thought it would be, oh, it would be really cool if we could, uh, just as that philanthropist, donated 1.5 hectares of greenery for the city like is there any way wow. we could make our project achieve the same kind of um uh quantum of greenery wow. uh and then we thought oh the hotel is a perfect opportunity really because hotels are really um their product is basically a, an environmental experience you know you go to a hotel you're choosing it because it looks like a great place to stay and you really want to experience and enjoy all the spaces. So it was a sort of perfect project in that we saw that um, a kind of uh, sustainable and philanthropic move would also align with the business objectives of a hotel. So we wouldn't face a lot of resistance. You know, if we could do it in such a way that the guests would want to come and stay there to experience it, then that Main, means from the hotel developer's point of view, it's a, it's a smart move, you know, it's not the architect making them spend crazy amounts of money on something that is uh, off, their, off their business case. Um, it was still quite difficult to get it to work financially because, you know, it's a lot of um, extra stuff. Uh, but we realized when we looked at their feasibility study, they actually factored in a really big basement for all the back of house and the car parking and, um, uh, mechanical areas and actually basements are super expensive they're um you know you've got to dig this big hole in the ground and they're really bad environmentally there's a huge amount of energy to to build it and then they just create um eat a lot of energy for the rest of their lives you know you've got to pump water out of them and you've got to pump air into them and you've got to light them artificially so we thought oh if we could find a way of getting rid of the basement uh we could actually use all that budget and all that time saving to spend on the gardens um, and so that was the sort of way we could um, get it to work financially. Um, and then after that, we had this, it was really interesting. It's like, what is, what is a building in the CBD that has so much garden? You know, what, what would that look like? And um, another concept we've interested in is sort of things that are not just one thing, like can they be both one thing and something else? And so we thought it'd be interesting if this was a really, kind of civic building that have a civic presence at the same time as being a landscape. Um, and could we get those two things to work simultaneously? Right. Yeah. And so, and I think it, it sort of worked really well. People feel like they're in a resort at the same time, they're in an inner city urban hotel. Um, and so the sort of experience of that simultaneity is actually something very attractive to the um, the modern business traveler or tourist. Uh, you know, they sort of get a whole lot of experiences at once. So we, we think it's something quite um, interesting to do in future projects. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, great project. Thank you. Uh, I would like to tell to our followers that you can write the questions in the question section. I will uh, check all of them at the end to ask from uh, Richard, uh, thank you. So I will ask about uh, Osio Hotel project uh, in downtown, uh, which you call it a living tower, right? Uh, yes. Living tower, yeah. <laughs> so, this, yes. This building generously presents itself to public with landscape and sky gardens. How such a structure came to life? 
Uh, with that one, I guess after Park Royal, we um, and we Park Royal, we actually achieved two hundred percent of the site as um, green area. So we managed to get the one point five hectares on. So we thought uh, it would be really interesting to push this even further. And um, another aspect that had come about was, you know, people saying, "Oh, these green buildings are kind of interesting, but what are you going to do with a, you know, a city that's already mostly built up? You know, it's never going to become a green city." And we thought, well, that's not actually true. If we could make one project have so much greenery on it, it could compensate for projects that had none. Uh, then you could have a sort of acupuncture approach where um, you could just have some of these buildings through the city and overall your green uh, plot ratio would be still quite decent. So uh, OASIA, we actually achieve 1,100% um, green plot ratio. So 11 times the site area in greenery. Uh, right. And which is quite a interesting figure because that means you know just ten percent of sites in the city that were done like right. this, and you would have an average of a hundred percent across the city. Uh, so that was one idea. I, the other one was as a form; it was not something like Park Royal where we had a sort of horizontal aspect to play with, and I think um, it was quite a built-up site. So we thought it's just a sort of different way of using landscape rather than landscape as a um, a sort of metaphor or using it as a topographic expression. Here we saw it as landscape as a finish, really. So we were cladding the, the whole building in, in greenery. Uh, and it's almost like a, a bower structure or like a garden structure where you grow, you know, creepers over a, an archway or a, a pergola or a gazebo, uh, one of those kind of forms. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, I would like to ask about Skyville project as well. Uh, we see a divided village in this project. And could you tell us a little bit about this Sky Village that meets almost all needs of users and allow them to socialize? Yes. So we were really excited to do this project because we'd actually done a competition in 2000 uh, for a project in Singapore, which we we were in the sort of shortlisted top five, but we didn't win it. And we'd, it, it was actually a project for us which had so many ideas in it, we've been exploring them ever since. Uh, right. And so I think we started Skyville in 2008. So sort of eight years later, wow. um, there was a sort of chance to have another go at it. Um, and so it was quite similar in terms of the brief. It was a project with many, many apartments. So in this case, it was 960 apartments in one building. And, uh, you know, that's the size of a, a town in, <laughs> in Europe. Uh, and so, exactly. you know, it sort of, it seemed wrong to just see it as a building stuffed with apartments. We said, you know, and being social housing, we felt like the social contract, this idea of the commons, uh, the idea that we're looking after each other was really important. And we thought in order for that to um, really work, people had to get to know their neighbors, we thought, because it's like the essence would be them that you know your neighbors, you know, if you need someone to water your pot plants or uh, to run and get help if something has gone wrong. We need to create the kind of environment where people have that old fashioned spirit that they used to have in a village on the ground. Um, and it's quite difficult to achieve in high rise because high rise space is usually at a premium. And when you are meeting people, you're sort of squashed in the lift with them. And you don't necessarily want to make friends with someone in the lift because, you know, you're a bit nervous they might follow you home, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a, it's a kind of a tense social space. And right. we realize that social space where people feel comfortable is always horizontal. Like you're, you're happy meeting people in the park or walking on the street, um, but it's never really vertical. And so we thought there's a real problem with the, with the typology of high rise and that it's inherently sort of anti-social architecture. And how can we address this in a high rise? So the project's 47 stories tall, so it's quite a, a high project. Um, and we thought, right. well, firstly, and 960 people, that was the other problem, like too many people. You would never, you can never know all your neighbors uh, when there's 960 families exactly. there. So, so we thought, that, so the key is really breaking it down into sort of smaller social groups um, where people would feel a sense of a neighborhood and Ideally, then they would have a horizontal space where they would meet their neighbors in a very casual and non-threatening way, sort of as they go through their daily routine. 
And that's when you start saying hello and patting their dog and, uh, you know, chatting or maybe the kids get exactly. together and do some study. Uh, and so the idea was to break it into um, 12 villages of 80 homes because we thought 80 homes is not so bad. Uh, that's sort of a, a sort of little neighborhood or a village size. And then the challenge was how do we actually get someone when they're just coming home from work, catching the lift, going to their apartment, how would we put them in a social space? Um, and so we developed this idea of creating a kind of vertical volume. Um, so we have basically 11 floors um, and eight units a floor, but then we drop some out for the common space. So that's the 80 units. So you, st you get out of the lift, you look down into the space. Um, that's where you would see your neighbor. You could just wave to them, you know, hi, Mrs. Wong. <laughs> or you could see uh, your own kids down there. You, go, you know, Fantastic. kids, I'm, I'm, I'm coming home, come up for dinner soon. So we just wanted that sort of ability. Uh, we did some study and find about 25 to 30 meters is the distance where you can see somebody's face. So that nice. translated to the 11 stories uh, of the public housing floor to floor height. Um, and it's working really well. There's been a recent study done by the National University of Singapore and they found that the people living in Skyville uh, know a substantially higher number of neighbors than uh, people in typical blocks. Yeah, exactly. A very brilliant project. Who are your biggest influencers? Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's a funny question because I think in some ways I think architects are sort of creative practitioners. You tend to be project based and you're looking for things that will help you solve a particular problem. Yes. But I had a very classical training at university, so uh, you know all the modernist uh, heroes. Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Kahn, um, and uh, Carlos Scarpa for detailing. These are all beautiful things. Yes. Um, I did find after that, sort of as I started practice, um, Herzog and de Miron, OMA, I really love their um, clarity in setting the problem and the sort of the way they come at a problem without a lot of baggage and do something that afterwards seems inevitable. You know, it's such a sensible, logical idea that flows from the problem they've yeah. set themselves, but it's incredibly innovative when you, you know, see how other people address the problem. And that kind of um, ability to uh, try and look clearly at a problem and not come at it as something where you have a lot of preconceived solutions is something um, we try and do it's sort of a bit funny at the same time. I so said we have a lot of sort of bag of tricks, uh, but I think it's sort of the tricks, the strategies that help us solve particular technical problems. Uh, but we like the big concept to try and be um, as open as possible, you know. So it's a bit like um, we have the uh, verbs and the adjectives and the words, uh, but in terms of the story, uh, we try you and need come very fresh to the story. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, is the future of sustainable architecture? Is it just uh, in words or we will have uh, sustainability in the future in our, mostly in our architecture projects or not? Uh, I think in some ways like architecture, I think is not, um, not the solution. Uh, I think architecture has to be part of the solution, but there's a limit to how much one building can achieve uh, on its own. Um, and I think it's really a, um, an issue again of the commons, like as a collective society, how do we solve this problem of um, the climate emergency and global heating? And how do we sort of together as a politically and as a society agree that certain things have to be done and certain things have to be invested in and changed? Um, at the same time, there's no point in having that agreement if we don't have um, sort of solutions for all the components. Um, so we've been very interested in um, systems thinking, uh, systems theory, because we can see that our architecture is just one part of a much bigger system. Um, and in some ways you can have, you can't really have one without the other. So I think sort of currently where we are politically at the moment is, seems to be going in the opposite direction to achieving um, sustainability. Uh, and you know, it's quite heartbreaking in many ways, I think, to see sort of consensus falling apart and everything becoming politicized in really unfortunate ways. Um, I'm, I think Singapore, where I live, you know, is really interesting that there is 
Uh, they do build consensus as a society. It's a key political tool and, um, you know, are very focused on data and very focused on what's happening in the future. Um, and I think that kind of whole of government coordination of solutions to a problem is is really important. And I think it's a it's it's difficult because we've got all different kinds of situations around the world. And obviously, if you know, if only 25% of people are addressing the problem and the other 75% are making it worse, making worse, uh, it can be a <laughs> it can be a little disheartening. I think, um, but I I actually think. Um, people at heart, uh, everybody wants this really. Like, I don't think anybody wants to live in an apocalyptic hellhole. Um, right. It's just a matter, I think often people can't see the path there that makes sense to them, or they feel like it's just they're being asked to give up a lot of things. Um, but uh, our experience is like any client, even hard-nosed, very, very uh, financially focused client, if you can find a way to make them the good guy, like no one's going to turn that down. They love to be a green hero. Exactly. Uh, but, <laughs> but, it's, uh, you know, but it takes a lot of creative work to figure out what's the route to do that um, in such a way that you're not asking them to you know, be the guy that suffers when everyone else is making money. Um, it's, you have to sort of put their hat on and imagine them and then see a way to do it. Um, it's not to say that the result is going to be, um, you know, solve every problem. But what we've seen is you do one project like Pike Royal with 200% green plot ratio, or you do OASIA with 1,100%. Wow. You know, you've kicked, you've kicked the chair out from somebody who says this can't be done, it's too expensive, it doesn't work on a commercial project. So then the only question is like, not um, it can't be done, but, you know, the question turns the other way around. Why can't you do it? Uh, why are you finding it a problem? Is there a way we can share the experience? Is there different ways of doing it in a different situation? Um, so I think building small examples and prototypes are really important in that it really does change the conversation. And I think the way things move forward is by a series of, of steps like this, where suddenly, yeah, it's not like it can't be done. It's just like it, it can be done in that way, in that place, and there must be a way of doing something similar here where, um, you know, maybe the situation is quite different, but yes. why not? <laughs> yeah, great. So in most of your projects, maybe located in Singapore and in a dense city like Singapore, you created like mini cities inside these cities. And I was just wondering how these mini cities just interact and integrate themselves with the environment and also with the city. Yeah, so I think that, that approach we realised that when projects get quite big, um, they do start behaving like cities. So we came up with a term which is um, uh, macro architecture and micro urbanism. And so the idea that um, once a building gets to a certain size, you need to navigate it like a city. You do need neighbourhoods, you need destinations, you need public space. Uh, and I think the more you can integrate that with the city outside so that it becomes a, um, a sort of seamless connection, uh, the more successful and integrated the, the project will be. At the same time, um, so that's sort of micro-urbanism. The macro-architecture bit was because we, we thought, um, actually, the, a lot of urban design is only two-dimensional. Um, you know, for most of the 20th century, it was about a master plan with use groups, you know, applied to different sites. Right. And there's a limit, we thought, to how far that can go, really, because it's sort of, um, uh, it's two-dimensional. It treats the surface of the earth as just like a piece of paper. Um, but we realised as we started looking at sustainable urbanism, you know, there's things like uh, access to sunlight, your energy layer, for instance, your planting layer. These are all things that, um, uh, you know, need to be put up the top of the building um, and that in order to achieve that goal of sustainability, buildings can't just be doing one thing. You can't just have a pleasant residential tower. Uh, you know, maybe that, that tower's got to be uh, generating its energy, it's got to be growing its food, it's got to be harvesting its water. So if you look at all these systems across the site, you realise you have to start planning it three-dimensionally, um, maybe in the dense city, you need a second street level, you know, 10 stories up. So that means you need a, 
uh, three-dimensional master plan where you're saying all buildings have to connect to their neighbours at you know level 50 metres above ground level. Um, and so that's where we thought it's starting to turn design of the city into something like architecture. So that sort of right. macro architecture is looking at urbanism um, as a three-dimensional problem to solve in terms of light and air and access and organisation. Yeah. Any <laughs> advice for young graduate architects or young generation of designers, architects who want to become an architect in the future, students as well? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, well, I think it's a, it's a challenging profession. So <laughs> you've got to really love it. Um, almost all our clients are people who used to be architects and they've crossed over <laughs> to become <laughs> developers. Uh, but I think, yeah, my advice, I think, is um, really, I think all fields of design are about imagining a better future. Um, yes. And so I think that's the really critical thing. If you can imagine where we should be going in 50 years, that can tell you where we need to be going next year and yes. step along that journey. Um, and so I think it's really important to build a, vi a vision of the future where you want to bring us to um, and not just see it as like cool Instagram stylings, which um, are very seductive. But I think in the end, um, they're not really that meaningful. I think what's really meaningful is, is to uh, be able to imagine this future, be able to communicate it to people to be able to build consensus around it. This is where we all want to go because architecture, you don't do it alone. Uh, you need to bring a lot of people on the journey with you. Um, so I think it's, um, that's one piece of advice. Another one I think is to learn about everything. Um, what's scary about the world is everybody's a specialist uh, and nobody seems to feel it's their responsibility to pull all these things together. So there's like an enormous lack of generalists. And architects are yes. one of the few professions, I think architecture, where you have to be a generalist. You have to know a little bit about structure, a little bit about mechanical, a little bit about detailing, you know, something about Actually, weather. Actually, a little bit about, about everything. Everything, yeah. And so we're one of the few people who are actually qualified, I think, to solve some of these problems coming up because the problems are generalist problems. You know, it's like, how do you balance um, transport versus you know embodied energy of going high how do we solve that problem so you end up having to go to a lot of experts and asking them the right question that's in a framework uh where you are sort of defining an area of interest and uh but nobody knows the answer and i think that's where it's a tremendously exciting profession um because there's so many things we don't know yet and uh even simple things with sustainability you know like recyclability versus embodied energy. I don't know the answer to these things. You know, there's like a hundred ways of calculating it. Um, and um, there's, you know, so much research to be done, so much knowledge to be shared, so many things to test out and try. And yeah. I think it's that testing out and trying that is so much fun and so exciting and, um, and so rewarding. So yeah, <laughs> I would say just, just read about everything, be interested in everything, follow every rabbit hole that, you know, when you're, um, something interests you and it will come in useful sometime, maybe not for five years or even 10 years, but eventually you'll go, ah, perfect. <laughs> I know the yeah. answer to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the challenging work to work as an architect? Um, what is challenging? I guess, well, the hardest thing I think when you finish your degree, is that you find out you still don't know anything and you think how could i spend five or six or seven years getting to this point and i actually only have you know the vaguest idea about fire safety and escape distances and so a lot of people have this terrible depression after finishing because i thought you know at last i get to um work on a project and design something and instead it's like oh my god i've got so many things to learn uh and i and the hard thing is until you kind of internalize a lot of these things, often your solutions, you know, maybe they solve three out of the 10 problems they need to solve. So you present it to your boss or your project director and you're all <laughs> excited that you've come up with this brilliant solution. And then you sort of get slapped. No, it doesn't comply with escape distance. Go back. And, and so you can feel terribly depressed that you feel like you're just sort of not in control right. of all the information, you know, and then you find the, you know, the client likes 
something that you don't like, but they're really, so, so it's sort of, I think a lot of, um, there's a period probably of five years extra <laughs> after graduating <laughs> yeah. where you're sort of building up a whole lot of skills about how to deal with all these real life issues um, yeah. and learning how to input them in all, all into the design. Um, and also learning this funny kind of um, headspace, I think, which is sort of solving simultaneous equations. Like if you're trying to approach it in a linear way, you never get to the end of it and you're always being sort of sideswiped by a new piece of information that means everything you just propose uh, right. is invalidated by this new piece of information. So you sort of learn the skill of being comfortable in a state of um, three-quarter solution and right. uh, expecting to be thrown <laughs> off the rails and having the adaptability to sort of go, oh, okay, if that means that, then I'll do this instead of that. And, and, and that takes quite a long time uh, to build up that, that skill. Um, and it can be very stressful until you realise that I think um, everybody's in the same boat, you know, so you don't have to be stressed about it. It's learning to enjoy it because that, that point where you actually get good at handling um, weird bits of information that arrive at the last minute is actually the point, I think, where you, you're an architectural designer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had the same experience when I graduated as well. So I would like to go back to your projects. Would you mind me asking about the projects as well? No problem. Okay. When we look at your projects, how do you ensure to capture the human scale in your buildings? Most of your buildings are in large scale and how do you make it easier to users to engage with these large scale buildings? Yes, I think that one, actually we had very good training by accident for that in, in, when we were designing hotels. Because when we started off designing hotels, the guest room is really critical, you know, getting it exactly the right size, right. designing the interiors, the bathroom. Um, and at the same time, you were sort of perfecting the room, you'd be working on the master plan. So working sort of one to 20, maybe, at the same as working as one to um, a thousand, for instance. So I think, and actually, in those days, we were doing it all by hand. <laughs> um, it's actually very much easier now, I think, on the computer to switch scales because you've got this sort of infinite zoom, um, which in a way stops you getting too trapped at a particular scale. But it, in some ways, it's also confusing, I think, because you don't have a sort of quantum jump between scales. But that's something we always do. So if you're designing a block of apartments, you're designing at the um, apartment fine scale detail at the same time as the building. And so working at the human scale, as well as at the urban scale simultaneously, I think that's how you get a project that feels good at, at both scales. Otherwise, if you sort of work it up at one to 5,000 and then one to 1,000, by the time you zoom in, you realize you've created these horrifying uh, <laughs> spaces because you know, it's only like it looks small until you zoom in and then you realize it's something completely out of scale. Yeah. I think the other thing that, um, you know, that working on CAD and computers have made and Google Earth, these sort of things so interesting now is you can actually um, uh, collage and assemble things that you know feel great and put them together. And so you can actually sort of build a project conceptually in all different kinds of ways that uh, we didn't used to do. I think what's weird about architecture is most of the training still seems to assume we're like a, a 18th century gentleman on our drawing board scratching with our ink pen you know it's sort of a, in terms of architectural teaching um <laughs> although they're sort of often exploratory ways of doing things right. but it still comes back to this dry set of of drawings and i think often people just sort of end up thinking about lines and not thinking about space, space. and i think there must be um space and details and objects and so I, I'm, I'm sure, like we're always looking for ways now to see how we can combine um, sort of collage, uh, work with materials, work with clipping things and putting them together, just in, in trying to free it up. And in terms of documentation too, it's like in terms of um, using BIM and things to actually put three-dimensional views into documentation, which is um, still not very common actually, surprisingly. So, you, you know, you do a horrible set of, section and elevation and plan and you want the contractor to have to sort of reconstruct it in their head rather than just showing a three-dimensional view of it which is so sort of easy for everyone to understand the exactly 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I just saw uh, one question in the comments uh, section. I'm going to ask about it. Uh, how do you think AI and artificial intelligence, computational and parametric design tools will help architecture in the future to find efficient solution for global warming or for pandemics or anything like this, urban life? What do you think about it? Uh, I actually think it's kind of tough because um, I think where parametric is is amazing is is with um, I think it's actually better with less parameters than the parameters. <laughs> Why? Practical. I don't know because I actually think I mean say something like for instance optimizing sun shading. Um, it's never just sun shading, you know. It's also like what's the view you're looking at? How far above ground do you want to look down? Do you want right. to look out? Is there something interesting on the horizon? So. There's so many kind of cultural judgments and the sun shading, you know, is, if it's like 70% effective, it's probably just as good as 100% because maybe, you know, if it's really sunny and someone's hot, they'll pull the blind down. And, you know, so there's, there's a kind of human side and a layer of interaction with so many other parameters that I, right. I think in some ways it's one of those things where we go, oh, if I could just come up with a foolproof system, I wouldn't have to have this stress of design anymore, you know? So I think a lot of parametric is thinking like, oh, I want to get away from the subjective, <laughs> you know, there must be a right answer. Um, but I think it's, um, I, I mean, I, it's not to say it's not a fantastic tool and it can yeah. really optimize some amazing things. But I also think it's like architecture is not an exact science. It's more, um, as I said, it's sort of a jack of all trades and a, and it's a kind of a negotiation between so many competing factors that I think it's actually good that we can't make a machine do this because we'd all be out of a job. I think architects may be like <laughs> the last people still in a job when everybody else has been overtaken by right. the robots because it's such a combination of kind of cultural, sure. cultural yeah. flows spirit of the time, as well as really boring stuff like, you know, size of sewer pipes and things like that. You know, it's a, a very, very strange profession in the way we have to negotiate between um, so many parameters. And I, I really think it's, um, it's, it's good for us that, <laughs> that our parameters are very uh, vague and ever changing. Um, but I do, I mean, in another way, like if you were sort of designing a a solar canopy that you wanted yes. to funnel wind down into the city. Like, I think if you can define a set of um, parameters that you particularly want to get an optimized form that's very exciting, um, I think it's great for that sort of targeted um, design exercise where you want um, a level of efficiency and also the beauty of efficiency and a sort of a a design that's just so sweet and elegant. Uh, I, th I think parametric is really useful for that. Great, great. One last question I will ask about your School of Art projects, which has been featured in Westworld season three uh, as well. I think it, it was episode three or four in both episodes I just saw this project. So how do you think this, uh, these kind of projects are trying to change the goal of science and fiction in the future and also how science fiction is affecting architecture okay um can you still hear me my i think my earphone something went off i hear you i hear you okay i might get a bit closer to the <laughs> i think it's going through it's my okay. phone now you um, can take it off if you want to talk with phone exactly actually okay do you hear me do you hear me um, yeah i can hear you can you hear me i hear you it's perfect okay perfect <laughs> Uh, yeah, we were a bit nervous when we heard they were filming uh, Westworld in a few of our projects because, uh, uh, you know, we weren't sure if it was going to be dystopian and uh, our projects were communicating a sort of a terrifying vision of the future. Yes. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was really fun to see them in the project. Um, so in the School of the Arts was actually a, um, I think it's a hospital or a apartment complex that the... Um, uh, I'm, I'm betraying the fact that I haven't watched it properly. Uh, <laughs> the guy who's sort of like a, a hitman, uh, and he's doing this job to uh, earn money to save his mum. His mum's actually staying there. 
but what's really amazing about the project is they're really like in a single kind of series of scenes they're cutting between like four different countries uh and um mixing it all together so you get this um uh city that's sort of yes. nowhere in particular um and um so having seen it and knowing where our projects are it's quite amazing the continuity i've, I mean, I've got a new respect for actors that they must have filmed the scene um uh, weeks apart uh and yet it, it flows together as a sort of continuous space and a continuous narrative great love it uh yeah thank you we also uh, had a they had a murder in the pool on um uh of pipe royal too so that was quite fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> are you watching Gasparel? i am I've, i've watched the first few but then i've um uh haven't caught up with the the last few episodes yeah okay, i loved great. the first two seasons that were yeah good. It's, it's getting exciting so it's been almost like 50 minutes we're talking so thank you so much for joining this live session do you have any final words to say to our followers um i guess i guess just be positive architects have to have a positive future as a, a vision of the future it seems pretty uh crazy at the moment but um uh it will pass and uh for me i'm really excited i think this the virus the positive thing that's come out of it is it's brought back a real sense of a collective and a community that we all have to solve the problem together and i really think this attitude is something we need to solve uh the climate emergency so what i'm hoping comes out of it is uh a little less uh rampant individualism and a little more sense that we can only prosper as individuals when we're in a really strong and caring society uh so that that's what i Um, my message for everybody is uh, um, when we recover, remember the caring and the community aspect. Yeah, great. Thank you. Love it. Uh, thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for joining to this live session. Uh, It's I been will... a real pleasure, Hamid. Great. Thank you. Looking forward for more sessions like this. Uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Just wanted to mention that Computational Design Next 2.0 conference will take place on 26th and 27th of September. It is a two-day online conference with live presentations, tutorials, interactive sessions, live mentorship, and panel discussions. So if you're interested about computational design or if you want to start your career as a computational designer, Don't miss out this opportunity and just register to the conference by going to parametric-architecture.com and register to the CDNext conference as soon as possible before tickets end. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to PSN's podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts in order not to miss a single episode. Also, you can find out more by going to parametric-architecture.com slash podcasts. Please share this podcast with a URL to inspire a friend. Also, you can use hashtag PSNs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to give us a feedback or a review about our podcast. Thank you so much.